Hello, so yes, I, I am Relly Annette Baker of the internet, uh, and I'm, I'm very glad to be here. Uh, I'm here to talk to you a bit about content strategy. I'm a content strategist. Uh, so I'm just gonna do a bit of a straw poll. Who here is, would classify themselves as mostly a uh, web designer? Uh, developer? Project manager? Few? Uh, anyone who would qualify themselves as a content person? One, two, three, a few at the back. All right, preaching to the converted on this one, sorry about that. The rest of you, I've got things to say, so listen up. Okay, so I want to tell you a bit about how this talk came to be. You'll notice it's called Content Strategy, the RPG, the role-playing game. Uh, and I play a lot of games. I play video games, I play card games, I play board games, all kinds of stuff. So I use game analogies a lot. Uh, and by that, I don't mean gamification, which is kind of, you know, click an app, check in, get a badge, woo. Uh, I don't really consider that to be much of a game, to be honest. Um, but I'm talking more about puzzle solving and, uh, and also the replication of interactions. So when humans sit down and have a conversation, how do we replicate that within a game? Uh, it's kind of interesting with games because you have a very structured universe. You know exactly what's good and what's bad within that, that rule book, but life doesn't really work like that. So as we have more and more increasingly open world games, how do we replicate those kinds of interaction and indicate good decisions and bad decisions? Um, and the reason this is interesting to me is uh, for, the, for feedback loops, which is something that happens naturally within games. You, you learn at, while playing what's a good decision and what's a bad decision. You, with a lot of games where there's a little bit of strategy involved, you start to learn very early on what makes a good move and what makes a bad move. Think about Monopoly. We all know landing on Park Lane, good idea. Um, unless someone else has got it, which is a bad idea. So th these feedback loops, the way we learn about things, got me looking at different game systems to see how I could replicate this in microcopy. A microcopy is the kind of interaction copy, the little pieces that you find uh, alongside form fields and filling in credit card details and things like that. To, because that is very much the conversation that a brand is having with its customer. Uh, and so it's really important to me to try and get that right because the, the best possible thing you can do if something goes wrong on your website is help someone fix that problem. And yet how many people have come across the thing where they've just been kicked out with, something's gone wrong, PayPal shafted this, Sorry, so long. And so I worked very hard to try and make that kind of stuff better. So I started looking at a game system for a role-playing game, Neverwinter Nights. Has anyone played that? A few people around about, it's a bit old now. And there's an open source system they have for developing your own mods, basically developing your own levels, uh, called the Aurora system. And I was looking at this as a way of developing different forms of, of copy, so things happening at different states. How can I make this easier for developers to understand what error message I want to happen in what particular circumstance? And so as I went around talking about all this stuff to different developers, I ended up having to talk a lot about game analogies, and I found that people began to understand more what my role was if I related it to a game, and so that's how this talk came about. So first of all, anyone recognize the characters here? Fan art of a TV show? Yeah, a few people? This is the 1980s, uh, the 1980s cartoon Dungeons and Dragons, based on the, the ro dice-rolling, paper-waving uh, strategy game of the same. Um, and uh, I think this is quite interesting. If, you, if any of you recall Dungeons and Dragons, the, ca the cartoon, in the very first episode, uh, the little guy at the front, the barbarian, got given a unicorn. Why would you even continue at that point? You've been given a unicorn. 
Like, game over, fine, got everything I want out of life. Like, and, and sometimes I think content strategy is built up like this. It promises a lot, or rather, the people that talk about it promise a lot. Um, and if, if content strategy was as marvelous as it's meant to be, it would be like getting the unicorn in the first episode. You know, you would click a button, and as soon as everything falls into place, you'd have this beautiful editorial would flow into the site. Everyone would know how to write beautifully. You know, this just, it would be wonderful. Unfortunately, life is not like that. Content strategy is not effortless. It's usually organizational scale change that needs to happen to make it work. How many people have been in a position here where they've turned to their client towards the end of a project and gone, so, uh, we could really do with the content to put into the CMS. Um, any, any of that happening? No? Okay, all right. So, um, yes, yeah, so the thing that, that I find interesting about this is it's actually avoidable, and it's avoidable by you people, because you can start having this conversation earlier. But to do that, you need to know a little bit about content strategy. And I understand that this is not necessarily the thing that you're interested in. You're here for development stuff and speeding up your website and that kind of stuff. But I'm going to make sure you understand why content strategy is great for very mercenary reasons. So forget the unicorn version of content strategy. Let's talk about the more pragmatic version of content strategy. I think content strategy is better for the fact that it's gnarly and difficult and complicated and there's bits that don't slot together properly. It makes for a much more interesting problem. Because would you honestly get up and go to work every day if everything just was exactly the same as it was the day before? I don't think I would. So you cannot know everything that happens within content strategy either. There's so much going on around the periphery every day. If you happen to do a Google, a Google search for the word content strategy, there's like a billion articles being produced every day. Because if there's one thing about content, content strategists, it's that they don't know how to shut the fuck up. We're so good at communicating, it's all we do. Um, but it means that, because you can't know all of it, you can go, I can't know all of it. Oh, never mind. I'll just get good at the bits I like. And there's plenty of those that you can learn and work into your, your process and, and, and get really excited about. There are, there are opportunities out there. In fact, if I was Mr. Burns, I would be steepling my fingers about an hour. Or so. There are opportunities for you within content. You can draw your own map. You can plan your own campaign. And you can call in other party members as required. So, how do you start on this path of enlightenment? First of all, level one ninja. Actually, Sheila was a thief, but she had a cape that she put over her head that made her invisible. So I figure ninja's pretty good, right? So what I want you to do is when you have a, a, a thing within your company or with a client where you think there's a problem, tackle a small bit of it. Don't think, oh God, it's all rubbish. I can't do anything. I can't change them. Take it upon yourself. Just do a small bit of extra work. Audit a small section and start making suggestions as to what could change. Look at that microcopy that I was talking about. I guarantee that if they're not thinking about their microcopy, then they won't notice that you've changed it until you present them with the conversion rates and say, look, I've made it better. Um, start tracking a particular analytic that you think will be interesting. Start doing some sneaky A-B testing. Uh, I am very much at the school of seeking forgiveness rather than asking permission on this stuff because I think if you go in and say to someone, we're gonna change something, their immediate reaction is, no, no, can't change it. It's been like that for however long. Whereas if you change a little bit in a way that they're not necessarily going to notice up front and present them with the results of that, it suddenly gives you a lot more uh, leniency to go do other more interesting things around that data. So if you're feeling really bold and you have a very big site, you can try orphaning pages from the navigation. That's always fun. See how long it takes someone to squeak, and you'll start noticing 
how long it takes for someone to understand whether their content is actually being looked at, valued, or whatever else, or how often they last looked at it. So my in as a, as a content person was, uh, was actually correcting other people's terrible, terrible about pages. So uh, my husband, back in 2002, was the uh, uh, lead web designer for Harrods, the department store, which sounds very fancy, until you understand that in 2002, they barely had a website. And certainly, their, web, their, their brochure that they would sell overseas would have about 150 people working on it at any one time, and their web department had three. Two were part-time. It was... So small in scale at the time, in fact, that uh, on his first time putting together the Harrods sale, and the first time Harrods had a sale online, he set it all to go live on the Monday, on, on the Saturday when the, the sale was due to launch, went home on the Friday evening, and didn't realize until the Monday morning that he'd set all the images on the server to be local. So the entire sale went live with nothing to see, just descriptions. And no one noticed! <laughs> So there you go. It just goes to show that sometimes an undervalued web website can allow you to get away with all kinds of stuff. The thing about this was once he'd learned not to set images to local and he got a bit better, he decided that he was going to go freelance, as you do. and Because, um, you know, that's the next obvious step, right? I've read a book, 24 hours of web design, I'm good. Uh, and so because he'd worked for Harrods and because everyone has the same reaction, ooh, Harrods, we thought brilliant clients were going to roll in. Like, we honestly thought it was going to be... Well, Dior, Gucci, Ferrari, they're all going to come to us. Funny enough, didn't happen. We, tended to, we started off with really high hopes and had to step down to sort of 450 quid websites and scraping by. And it's amazing what clients want you to do for 450 pounds, I've always thought. And so what would happen is he would labor for hours and hours on producing these websites. And then he'd go, right, I'm going to be on my portfolio, it's brilliant. And they would just then pour this liquid shit into it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to our website. We've been established since 1977 in... Who cares? Who cares? So, so that he could put things into his portfolio, I started rewriting the content for free. Like, Joel didn't mention that, but that's a really big mistake. Don't do things for free. It's never a good idea. But from this, I started to play around it because they weren't caring what was going on, because they weren't paying attention. I could start trying out different stuff, and that's how I got my way in. I started self-assigning just little pieces here and there on top of what was already going on. And we might scrape some of the money out of the budget somewhere else to cover what I was doing, but it meant that I got a chance to play. And so this was my thing in. I was able to then start doing the stuff. There were easy fixes to make a difference, so I could then go back to the client and say, next time, I'd like you to pay me for doing more of this. And they go, yeah, looks way better. That's brilliant. We'll, we'll definitely pay. So, level two, Ranger. You've now made some differences. You've changed some microcopy. Things are converting. This is good. Uh, so here's, here's something you may not know about content strategy. Um, is that, Well, I mean, I think it's true for most of us. We're pretty much all on a path with no map. Uh, some of us have cut a bit further through the undergrowth, so we have a bit more oil in our lamp. But there is no predestined way to roll out a content strategy because it's a massive change for a lot of uh, organizations. A lot of places are suddenly having to become publishers. So if you think about a roof tiler, a roof tiler 10 years ago would have gone to the Yellow Pages and put an ad in the Yellow Pages. And the Yellow Pages guy would have written that advert for him. And he would have paid his 250 quid, and that probably would have brought in some good business for him. Now, to be a roof tiler, you have to have a website because the first thing people go and check is whether you've got a website and the testimonials that you've got. And suddenly it becomes, should I have a blog about roof tiles? Should I have a Facebook fan page where people can like my roof tiles? 
Should I tweet as roof tiles? Should I have a Pinterest account of many, many different types of roof tiles? Uh, and so suddenly, these companies have become publishers where they weren't really set up to be publishers and they're not sure what to do. So although we as content strategists, and I'm sure the people amongst us, that, you know, you guys that do design and development, you know, we're kind of still fumbling around in this medium to a certain extent. It's still quite new. We are absolutely way less terrified than any of our clients about what's coming. They are so scared about the moment where you hand over the, the site, take the check, shut the door and go, good luck then. That big day two problem, like how do we keep this up to date? How do we keep doing this? So you can help break down this stuff for them as a client. You can help break down all this stuff they have to compile as a client. We have to stop talking about content as if it's some great you know, proper noun. We should talk about contents. You don't talk about the content of a book. You talk about the contents of a book because it's individual sections that are put together. And a book is never one author. It's always, uh, a, you know, I, I take the example of Stephen King. Stephen King is the author that I always think of that has his name way bigger than any of the titles of his book. Because the fact that it's written by St Stephen King is way more important than what the book's actually about for most people. Uh, but Stephen King himself did not pick out the typeface. I'm pretty certain he wasn't choosing the paper. He wasn't cutting it down at the publishers, and he certainly wasn't editing his own book. One of Stephen King's books is a whole process. Even though it says Stephen King on the end, and we see it as one book, it's not... It's not just one process. Consumers see the whole. And so when our clients see their website or what they think their website should be, they see it as a chunk. They see it as this thing that they have to produce in one go. And that's not true. So how do we break this down for them? We have the opportunity to guide them at this point. We can, we can use page tables and audits. So start off by helping them learn how to audit their site and understand what's there and how it got to be there. Because someone put it up at some point, if they don't know who owns that content, how do you find out whether it's important or not? The next stage in that is you start planning, well, okay, so what's the message behind this site or this page or whatever? Why does it exist? What are you trying to tell your, your customers about this? What's the method you're going to use to do that? Is it going to be text or is it going to be video? Or, I tend to use, this isn't a game analogy, but it works quite well. I talk about the Power Rangers a lot with clients at this point, which is kind of bizarre, but kind of works. Because most people know about, you've, you guys have the Power Rangers, right? You have Power Rangers in Wales. <laughs> right. This is not a third world country, right? Yeah, good. Okay, so, so the Power Rangers, you think about the Power Rangers team, right? We, I know you've all got the vision in your head of those kids in like who are wearing the daft suits, right? So I didn't bother putting a slide in. So you've got your red Power Ranger. Now, he's your text. He's the leader. He's, he's going to be on most pages, leading most of the charge, right? And then you're going to have your yellow Power Ranger, who's going to be pictures, uh, and Yellow Power Ranger comes along and assists Red Power Ranger in his mission. And then you're going to have Green Infographic Power Ranger, who, who turns up sort of once or twice, big heroic moment as the infographic descends onto the page and makes everything clear as the captions start to roll. Uh, you, get, you get Pink Power Ranger. She's kind of a bit sexy than the others, even though you shouldn't think she is. Uh, and she's video. Like, she doesn't get many stories in, in a series, but when she does, they're really, you know, they really impact you. Know, they're the ones that you remember and, and talk about on fan forums for, for years to come. So you take your Power Rangers team of bits and pieces and you put them together and what do you make? You make a giant mechanoid of content because that's what it's like when you finish. It's only the content once you've compiled it all, rolled it out and got it ready to test and, and push on to the next bit. And you're always going to be upgrading your weapon system because the Power Rangers didn't stay the same, did they? They're always rolling out a new machine as new things come in. And so this is what we have to prepare our clients for. It's not only are you building your uh, Power Ranger team, 
but they're going to want to upgrade their weapons, and you have to keep track of you know, inventory of what they've got. Have I taken this too far? I'm not sure. <laughs> more, more. So we want to, basically we're breaking things down. We're not saying to people, you have to produce this whole lump. And I mean, I would love it if CMSs had this button at the top that you could say, you know, fill everything or make this good. Because the CMS vendor that rolls that out is going to make a ton of money. But unfortunately, we have to roll back on the idea of breaking down what's the message, what's the method, and most importantly, what's the call to action? What do you want people to do with this content once you've once they've consumed it, what's the thing? So with our roof tiler, it might be, here's our website, here's us looking trustworthy fitting, fitting tiles, so you know we're not gonna rob your house, here's our beautiful array of tiles that we use, here's the number to phone us. Because you don't have a, a, like a, a little form on a page where you say, I'd like to order some roof tiling, it's not that kind of e-commerce store. So the next obvious step is you want people to phone you, and so you can adapt your content accordingly. Okay, so we've now got to a point where we've, persuaded our clients that content might be a good thing, and they've started to come around to the idea that actually they might be a publisher. Once we step up to bigger scale stuff, we're then a level three warrior. Yes, we're ready to leave people into battle, or organizational change, as it's generally known in our industry, but same thing. Once clients can see that content on a small level, then you can start building that pile. You know, there's suddenly these publishers, they have to step up, you have to step up and defend the people that are making their stuff. And if they don't have people making their stuff, you have to help them find people that make this stuff for them. Either help them work out how they're gonna hire someone, or have a team of freelance writers or whatever that you can call on to recommend. Because as an agency, or as, a, as the, the freelancer that's leading their redesign, they're looking to you for guidance because they still bracket this under the web stuff, even though you bracket this under the company stuff. Um, so make sure you've got some people that you can fall back on and recommend. It may even be a case that you take them in-house or, or contract with them for bigger projects or whatever. But you have to lead this cavalry. Um, it's a big ask, but all content strategists and all people involved in content are organizational changes at this point. Uh, things are not staying the same. We are, we're at a point now where we have websites, where you might go on a website to order a washing machine, and the manufacturer tells you a bit about that washing machine. You might even look at it on your phone. And, and read about it and click the button there. But at some point in the very near future, your washing machine is going to be texting you to tell you that the wash load is done. Which sounds bizarre, but we want to know that the content that we've produced now is gonna be ready for the point when it's being pushed out by a washing machine. You want it to sound the same, you want it to be in place so they can do it, you want them to be able to be in a, a competitive advantage place as well so they can do it first when it's available. And the only way you can do that is by having editorial systems in place, which I could go on for hours about, but I won't. Um, but you know, if you want to look at editorial systems and editorial calendars and, calendars and things, this will give you an idea of the sort of changes that um, the organizations are looking at. Now, if you work as an agency, it's not going to be your job to roll this out for them. If you work in, inside an organization, maybe it is. Maybe you're the right person to take this on. You're cool. Okay, so the thing is that once you've done results of level one and level two, people are gonna trust you a lot more. So either as the consultant or the employee, you know, you're gonna be the person they come to and say, how do we make this better? And remember what I said about us only ever being a couple, you know, we're not, we don't have this great mapped out thing. We're only ever a couple of steps ahead of our client. And that's okay. You just need to know what those couple of steps are and to be all right retracing your steps where you need to and trying things out. And the reason this is massively important for pretty much every business is co content on the website has to be so much. We think of it often as blog articles and maybe you know some about pages and so on, but it often has to be customer service, sales, marketing, the voice of the, 
you know, the company board and, and so much more. And so that's a big system for them to suddenly get their heads around. The stuff that they would do face-to-face -face is increasingly becoming less face-to-face. -face, so how do you compensate for that? Okay. Level four, wizard with a magic hat. Almost as good as a unicorn. Okay, so we've now reached this point where content, as it exists at the moment, is no longer sign-off, push-out for a lot of companies. It's, it's orbital. It exists beyond your control. It's on YouTube, and it's on Facebook, and it's people reposting things, and it's people sharing stuff, and people talking about your brand, even if you don't like them talking about your brand. Um, it's, it's, you have to create this editorial process at this point, which means you can do magic things like repackage content because it becomes platform agnostic. You know, at a point very soon, we're going to stop thinking about the content that appears on a website, and we're going to start thinking about the content that can pretty much travel anywhere. Uh, and that's, that's a form of adaptable content. I would really recommend you uh, look up Karen McGrain, who is talking a lot about this at the moment, and, and how it will impact on your work as designers and developers and project managers and so on. So at this point, we're starting to do, if you've covered all this stuff, and you're now led an organizational change, and you're a bit you know, kind of confident, a bit cocky, Doing, doing good. Uh, it's now point, the point where you want to do your own research. Because like I said, there's still so much we don't know about content strategy at this point. And we, I mean, we are actively looking for people to come join us and find an area that they're interested in and start pushing the boundaries and experimenting. So if you're into that, here are some of the areas that we're currently looking into. Accessible. Uh, there is uh, a, a definition of accessible that's well known within the web community. But outside of that, I would like to suggest accessible is a Bible in your language a set of instructions at a literacy level that you need, a design created for all audiences to use and access, both uh, on, on the site and in a physical sense, and something that's able to adapt to your needs based on location. So uh, when I worked on AlphaGov, which is now uh, GovUK uh, last year, one of the things we did is uh, for passports, renewals of passport, we would use IP address to look up where someone was and the first answer we would give them when they were saying, where can I renew my passport, is we would give them their local post office based on that, rather than a list of all the post offices in the UK that they had to go by drop-down. That was still available as a secondary option, but the first one was, this is the nearest post office to you, this is a map, this is the directions to get there. In the new enhanced version that they're currently rolling out, the, the version of Accessible they're doing for that is they are, uh, they're hoping to coordinate with different post offices to actually film the outside of the post office so that people that are disabled know their access points. Because people who are in wheelchairs going to a new place to do a new thing, it can be terrifying to not know whether you're going to get in the building or not. And so that's where they're pushing Accessible, and it's through this kind of content that they're developing. The next on the list is Searchable. We know search is quite important, I'm sure. So a book has a table of contents and an index, and web stuff has search on a grand scale. If we're really lucky, it's got search within a page. We haven't really got much going on between that. Our tagging systems and so on are still a bit all over the place. <coughs> Excuse me. Internal search is one of the most neglected areas of research and a massive frustration when you're trying to find things quickly. How many times have you been to a site and then you just can't find the thing you're looking for in, in terms of internal search? Yeah, a few people. So uh, Jerry McGovern, who worked with Microsoft, uh, recently helped them uh, ditch a quarter of a million pages from their site uh, that were all put into knowledge base, because Microsoft had this thing that if you make something, you make a knowledge base article about it and you put it on the website. They got rid of a quarter of a million pages, half of which had never been seen by a human <laughs> outside of the person that wrote it. That's crazy. Um, 
And then it just meant that when you searched for Microsoft Office, instead of coming up with the thing that you wanted, you'd get 100,000 knowledge base articles about things that were you know, arcanely wrong with a version 10 versions ago of Word. Uh, so it's a, yeah, it's a massive frustration, but searchable also goes hand in hand with findable. And there is a distinct difference. So if we think of the Dewey Decimal System in libraries, there's bibliographies as well, and other library sciences like that, they've defined how we list and record information in all formats. On the web, we have URLs. Uh, but now we're starting to make a hash bang of those, pun intended. Uh, and the follow-up is some slightly arcane tricks that we play on search engines, which are increasingly having less and less uh, effect. Having to fall back on decent content. But I do think findability is cracking the next nut. And the answer might lie in open link data and the concept of orbital content, pulling people in by a variety of different forms. Desirable, so we've made it searchable, we've made it findable, now we need to make it desirable. People need to want it, and they need to know that they want it. So far on the web, we have app stores over here, and thrashing out on Google for places over there, but sharing via social media is now beginning to pick up pace. You might have seen the massive increase in traffic that's come via Pinterest, uh, because that's tapped into a, a niche of visual stuff that needs content to back it up. So it tends to be, here's the pretty craft that I've made, here's the tutorial about it, in a way that neither Google nor social could necessarily pick up as it was. It was hard to relay those by the existing um, social networks. Then there's curation as well. If things are curated correctly, trusted sources allow us to find things that we want. As an example of this, there's Brain Traffic. Uh, they are a content strategy agency based in Minnesota, and they run the Confab um, conference. But their Twitter account it's not just about the, the own things they do. They post about 10 times a week, and a good half of those are articles that aren't their own, of things that are relevant to content strategists. And so that is my go-to place to find good articles about content strategy, because they've already been curated. They've already been found for me. So this, this idea of curation is going to start gathering pace. And how do we start both doing that um, human terms and also starting to automate that in a clever way? Uh, I, it, when curation goes wrong, that's why we end up with those terrible adverts that get tagged against, you know, there was, um, there was a story I saw in the Star Tribune in Minneapolis when I was there last week. A restaurant provided food for a, a wedding reception, and they provided duck. And the duck gave a lot of people at the wedding reception food poisoning, and two people died. That's an incredibly terrible story. And sitting alongside this was an advert for Avios uh, in Insurance, whose symbol is a duck, and it was an advert for life insurance. And this ran, I mean, we can laugh, but it must have been horrifying for the people there. And that ran for four days, four separate stories, and that's what their system was tagging up. That's when, that's when pulling this tagging goes wrong. Like, there should have been a human in that somewhere. At the very first time that it was flagged up, someone must have gone, right, we've got to stop this. And presumably, it was too difficult for them to do so, because they can't have not noticed. All right, so that's not desirable. We'll move on. Um, but presenting well-selected collections is important. It's why I can spend hours in a good bookstore. Because it's the range of choices that are available to us and that, that range of things that I'm, I might be interested in that I could explore that I didn't know before. Shareable. So Erin Kassain, uh, who's a great content strategist, wrote um, The Elements of Content Strategy for a Book Apart about a year ago now. Uh, she did some research for Wired, for, uh, for Condé Nast, and, uh, and also Wired magazine, because they were having trouble with their iPad app when it first came out. They released the first, uh, the first epi uh, episode, first 
you know, collection for free, first three um, magazines for free, and they were well received. But then after that point, subscriptions went like that. And they, they tried to work out what they were doing wrong, because essentially they were putting out the same magazine, the same content, so you know, what was the problem? What they found was, when they did some user research, is that people kept describing the iPad app as dead. Isn't that a weird word to use for, to describe an app? But it's because it was literally trapped under the glass. People couldn't copy and paste it. They couldn't send excerpts to friends. They couldn't annotate it. They couldn't share it very easily. And so it was less useful than the magazine. If you can rip out a page of a magazine and send it to a friend's snail mail, and your app is less shareable than that, you are doing something wrong. Uh, and so they, they then had to rethink about how they were going to start, you know, what do we do about shareability? What do we do about page content and so on? And so they had to massively revise what they were doing in terms of their business strategy for iPad. And it's still not doing massively well because they haven't taken up all the recommendations. Uh, the, uh, Condé Nast have got another interesting problem with uh, Glamour magazine, which is in the States. Glamour magazine in the States is their go-to title. It's the one they know is going to make you know, three times as much as Vogue or other places. And... Um, they currently have a workflow that involves them pr producing the print magazine, uh, and then as soon as the print magazine has gone to the printers, the same art direction team have to stay up pretty much overnight until it's done, producing the, reworking the version for the iPad app, because their workflow doesn't allow it to be the same thing. So they're, they're literally redesigning the magazine again for the iPad. Worse than that, they heard that interactive was a good idea, so they design it so you can hold it this way and this way in two different versions. It's swapping between versions when you do that. Three months ago when they last, no, a year and three months ago when they last released figures, they'd sold 3,000 copies on the iPad. Can you imagine sitting up all night and knowing that they're selling 450,000 copies in print and you're selling 3,000 on the iPad? That's a sad state of affairs. And that's when editorial stuff goes wrong, when someone hasn't thought about their workflow. How can we do these one-on-one? One on one? Okay, so never forget, you can rip a page out of a magazine and post it. If your content can't travel that easy, it's pretty much no point. Selectable. That was my husband's idea of a joke. Um, encyclopedias come in multiple volumes. Uh, we have chapters of a book, anchor points in a recording, uh, newspaper clippings, all selectable sections of computerized text. Our current technology has a big disconnect between the person creating and pushing live the content and the receiver. So it's easy to forget that the person, the receiver, is the point of that content. They're the reason that it's there. And they should have the freedom to repurpose, save, change, annotate as they wish. Kindle introduced last year annotations, which for me, I read a lot of really boring textbooks, really useful for me to annotate stuff. On the flip side, I don't suggest you do this, but should you ever come across a copy of Twilight on the Kindle uh, and go and see the, the millions and millions of things that teenage girls have annotated, it's quite entertaining. Uh, you also need the option to turn that off. We need to be able to quiet the noise as well. Self-aware. Within the history of the book and its contents, self-aware probably meant encyclopedias referring each other. But if we think of what we can do now, our content... Let me just make sure I'm not going to trip over myself here. Yeah, okay, so our content on the web is a web. It's not called a web for nothing. So we should be able to link one to another and be aware of the things that are going on around that. And that means we need to revise the way that we are currently linking our data and tagging our data. So this is something that I'm just personally starting to get to grips with. I don't know much about it, I'll be honest. But one person that I would really recommend you follow up on is Rachel Lavender at Razorfish, who's written some really interesting stuff about nimble content and how we can start 
creating these chunks of content and bolting them together in a way that's useful and, and readable to both machines and humans. Oh, and linkdata.org is the other place to go for that. So portable, totable. Up until now, we have been limited by that damn physics stuff, haven't we? We haven't been able to carry our content around. But uh, then we had handheld Bibles. That made a big difference. You know, you used to have a, two altar boys just hired for holding books. Now you can just one altar boy. It's a 50% reduction in altar boys. Microfiche records was another thing where it's like suddenly we had thousands and thousands of newspapers that we could access. And now we've got increasingly small physical disks that allow us to take more with us for less. In the future, digital space is not going to be the issue. We have solved that now. Ownership over that digital space or access is a whole other question. And that's another one that we're going to thresh out. Like it's going to be, you're soon going to have enough physical space on a disk that you can carry with you that you could put every single movie ever made on it and carry it with you. That's pretty cool. Apart from the licensing to get around that is going to be crazy. Uh, and so increasingly when we talk about content, we have to talk to our clients about, well, so what are you, what are you happy with? What are you prepared to, to do in terms of sharing content and allowing it to move around and, and gearing them up for this new place that we're moving to, which is this is not going to be yours for much longer. So we have to start coming up with new models that, um, that allow people to do this kind of portable sharing and taking all this stuff with them because soon they're going to pick up their entire library. Flexible. So building on, building on from that. So your content, we now know, could be infinite. But your conduit must adapt so that we can select what we want on any device anywhere. It's basically, I want you to pack up this whole library for me and put it on disk. We can now do that. Our limitations are now in repacking that data. It's like the space elevator. It's the hardest thing you ever have to do once, providing you keep a backup. Always keep backups, people. Um, you're giving this content life through searchability, accessibility, shareability, and so on. This flexibility is now at the core of what it is that we're going to do in the future. When I talk about um, adaptive content, I'm talking about putting things together in chunks where we're not thinking about how this is going to look until we're ready to design it. We're thinking about what the content does and stands alone as and where it might go. Things like APIs mean that our content is traveling in places that we wouldn't have anticipated. It's, down, it's almost down to the end user to start designing what to do with that content. It's up to us to start providing the content for them to do things with in a format that they can do that. Okay, so we've done all that stuff. That was the hardcore bits, right? The science is over now. So now you're a level five acrobat. There we go. But you have a flexible skill set, which is why I picked the Acrobat for this. You can make small changes, like microcopy. You can make big changes, like writing really good sites, top to, top to bottom, putting editorial stuff, knowing what you know, sounds, sounds consistent. You can make organizational scale changes. You can go in and help people work out exactly what they need to do in terms of editorial. And you can perform magic, moving content from place to place. If you can do all this, you are officially a commodity. You have earned your Content Strategy Scouts badge. Well done. You might want to start looking for bigger challenges. Erin uh, Kassane, who I mentioned earlier, said uh, in her book that there is more work out there than the existing content strategists can do. We are actively looking for people that want to start pushing these puzzles from whichever avenue they come from, whether it's development, design, uh, copywriting, whatever. We're looking for people that can help us start doing this because it's going to start trickling through all of our practices and all of our disciplines. It's not going to go away. Sorry, if you wanted it to, not going to. So yeah, so we're now at this point where we're looking for people to join us and start doing interesting things. Once you get to that, you are then the dungeon master. Hey, 
You can shape new worlds. You can start forming your own party of characters. You know, you, you can have, forget your Power Rangers, you can have library scientist boy and data visualization girl, uh, editor extraordinaire. You can start putting together teams of people because content strategy is not one thing. Content is not one thing. It's about different skill sets being brought together. That's where we're moving towards. And so at this point, you're, you can then, you know, five, five steps to running an agency, right? That we've got there. Uh, so you can create projects, so you can find these problems to solve, and you can make a big difference. So, with that in mind, I would like to tell you, uh, I am recruiting my own adventuring party for a very short, li a very limited time. Uh, I have just started an online class that explores creating web content, right from personas and scenarios through to testing content, writing content, everything you can think about, and it's happening over the next six weeks online. Um, I have not very many spaces left, so if you're interested, I would really urge you to go take a look at supernicestudio.com slash class. Um, if you're doing that in here, be careful. We have found that the video auto-plays on some devices. I have tried to make it stop, but I can't. Um, but this teaches all the stuff about around an example website, so the class all works on the same project, doing bits and pieces, and then you can re relate that to your own stuff and see how it gets better. There's presentations, there's handouts, there's tasks, there's a forum, there's video chats. Uh, yes, there is actually a unicorn in the first episode and unicorns throughout. Uh, so yes, six weeks is lasting. It's, it started yesterday, so now is a good time to join. And uh, hopefully I will see you in class. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.